All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode 231. I'm with the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Brocky, back on the podcast. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing okay. Currently uh, melting in West Texas, but otherwise we're doing okay. <laughs> Look, you're tr- you're not selling me on moving to Texas with this. <laughs> I, t- I, I, I was driving yesterday down the PCH. It was 75 degrees, sunny, not many cars on the road. I mean, I was like, this is bliss, minus the overhead for me to live here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but yeah, and now you're like, I'm melting. So is it is it triple digits there in El Paso? Yeah, currently this week it's in like the 100 to 105 range. I was like waiting to, I usually take a walk or two a day when I'm not working in the hospital. And I was like, I'm just going to wait until later evening. And like at 930, I went out to take a walk and it was like 98 still. Oh, (laughs) yeah, no, I mean, it's giving Midwest vibes like where I'm from, like St. Louis was like that. So if you're like, look, um, that's where I'm from. I claim St. Louis my whole life up until like 2011, I was there. You get the worst of all four seasons. In the winter, it's like not enough snow to really have a lot of fun, but a lot of ice and sleet and like ways to hurt yourself by driving a motor vehicle. (laughs) And then in the spring, it's like, oh, it's probably so beautiful. I'm like, no, it's just raining nonstop, right? And then the fall, it's it's hot, still super hot. The summer is unbearable the humidity anyway i'm not talking about the weather makes me feel bad about myself like whenever i have a weather conversation with somebody oh yeah for sure just i try to make those end as fast as i can totally yep yep weather that's a thing (laughs) uh any any case judging by your attire it looks like you're are you done training did you just yes i already trained today today was a very light accessory day but we're we're out here doing the thing yeah i just trained too and uh i was this was one of the only times i can recall where I did not want to go to the gym. I just, okay. I, I have a bunch of work to do. I don't feel great. I'm like sore and t- just no, nothing going for me. Right. It happens. Yeah. But I, I went and you know, it was probably one of my best sessions in the last <laughs> like few weeks, both performance wise and just enjoyment wise. Cause, cause now, you know, I think we're, we're chasing these like all time numbers require like a lot of different things to align for us to actually PR unless it's some PR that like doesn't really matter because we've sure. just never done it before. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, you know, it's a long process, but like the enjoyment for me is kind of almost detached from the actual numbers. There's like a, a threshold you gotta, okay. You gotta be lifted above this much for it to be, yeah, this thing counts. But then, um, I don't know, just enjoying the session. It's like, yeah, I d- executed things really well. I did all the sets. I feel good. I don't know. It was just good. I feel better now. I'm like, Oh, I don't know That's what to good. say. I know. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of like in cruising mode, almost like waiting for some of the stars to align because I'm not really feeling much of anything at the moment in, yeah. in training that's feeling awesome or particularly bad. I'm just kind of like going. And then I know that on some kind of uh, unpredictable, semi-cyclic nature, eventually things will line back up and things will go well again. So Yeah. Once I start to get weaker, you'll know <laughs> right. that it is now your time to shine. So I'll strike. Yeah. But I've just, ha- I've just had like a, a, a pretty good run. So yeah. this is my fault. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. It's fine. <laughs> uh did you, I know you listen to planet money. Sometimes that podcast on NPR, mm-hmm. did you listen to the twin studies one that I got uh, through about half of it? I have not finished it yet, but yeah, yeah. I started I'll, to hear it, listen to it the other day. I'll link that in the description below only because uh, a lot of the nutrition stuff that we end up discussing at various podcasts and, and stuff, we talk about twin studies, great way to study like nature versus nurture. And uh, I think they did a really good, like accessible version of that particular discussion. Also, they referenced Dr. Bouchard, who is the guy who did a ton of those weight gain and weight loss 
studies on twins. And I was like, huh, they know about this guy. I thought they were going to get him on the podcast. I got super excited. I was like, oh, we're going to hear him. Uh, but yeah, so I'll link that. It's pretty good, pretty good discussion if you're curious on why twin studies are so important, so cool when trying to suss out like nature versus nurture. Uh, also, if you're listening to this and you're like, Hey guys, just get to the testosterone stuff. They're waiting. Talk about super physiological high doses of testosterone or lifestyle changes and how those affect testosterone. Those episodes are coming, but like some stuff has come up. Some stuff has come to light. This new policy by the American Medical Association, the AMA on BMI. I've been my my inbox overfloweth with with questions on that. So we're gonna talk about that. And then also there's been um some what I would consider like a rapid sort of infusion of new anti-obesity medications that have been like studies been published and, and whatnot. So we'll talk about that. Yeah. Every, there's a big, the, the ADA, the American Diabetes Association national meeting is happening currently or just happened. And so that's typically when big time breaking, you know, kind of research and publications and, and things like that end up getting presented. So there was a bunch of those that just came out and that's kind of like the the, the hot topic in the medical world and the endocrinology world and the obesity medicine space. And so these are things that I think, you know, we are anticipating, <laughs> we will start to get asked questions about. And so we're just going to, you know, let people know what those things are, some of, you know, what, what their names are um, and what to expect kind of coming in the semi near future. Do you think that anybody shows up at the American Diabetes Association, the ADA's conference, but they're like a dentist and they're like, I saw ADA and I show up. <laughs> I, they're like, Embarrassing. What we, yeah. Or vice versa, right? You're like an endocrinologist. You show up at the American Dental Association's conference. I don't know. If it, Look, if, if you're listening to this and that's been you, like, let me know. I'm very curious what your experience was. Like, do you stay? And you're like, well, I'm already here. Got, got a drink voucher. I'm going to stay. I don't know. Uh, okay. So yeah, the testosterone stuff is still coming up. We're going to talk about it. It's just, this stuff is topical and timely. So we're talking about it on this podcast. Also, before we get into it, new stuff, uh, Austin, this is a brand new t-shirt, new colorway. Uh, people really been liking. Yeah. I like the look of it. Thank you. I mean, I, I didn't do graphic design. I, I didn't go to fashion, the fashion Institute, but some people say very few people say, but some nonetheless say that I uh, am fashionable. In any case, uh, the street tees, we got new colorways. We've restocked all the colors. Those are going to be up on the website by the time you listen to this. Again, the Bodybuilding 2 template's now available. Uh, restocked supplements. So the PeriRx stuff has been reformulated. We have the caffeine-free version that's going to be available shipping next week. It's just past our uh, informed for sport testing. All of our supplements are third-party tested to make sure that exactly what's on the label is in the supplement itself and nothing else. And the way RX vanilla stuff is in stock as well. New articles on the website. We've got the uh, latest uh, stuff from Dr. Derek Miles on the meniscus, uh, also the science of weightlifting belts. And then Cassie Neiman, our resident rowing expert, uh, just put up five Really, really great tips on how to improve your rowing. Uh, when I was editing the article and, pu- and formatting and whatever, I go, this stuff's good. Why Why am I rowing like an idiot? Uh, so yeah, that, that uh, article is also on the website now as well. And finally, we have some live in-person seminars coming up. The pain and rehab team is going to be in Los Angeles in September at Monarch Fitness, uh, Monarch Athletic Club, Monarch Fitness. I don't know. What do you... What do you think their preferred branding is? I think it was Athletic Club, if I recall. I think, I think so too. Yeah, they have a new location uh, in 
uh, and in Los Angeles. So that they're going to be there in September. We, for our two-day health and performance seminar, so Dr. Baraki, myself, Leo Lutz, Tom Capitelli, and the untamed one, Dr. Alan Thrall, will be at Untamed Strength in October of this year. And then for our uh, friends in the South Pacific, we're going to be in Sydney and Perth. We just added a second location in Perth, so we'll be on the west uh, coast of Australia in January of 2024. So you can sign up for those. Uh, I, do you think we make it to what is it, Rottnest Island, to see the Kowakas? I think that you uh, end up steering that ship, which I imagine is going to be the case. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, Tom and I are we're ready. We've been wanting to see these rodents with smiley faces for years now. It's I think it's going to happen. So yeah, if you're in Australia or near near there and you want to come uh, to our uh, health performance seminar, we're, we're going to be back. I think we haven't been there since what, 19? That was, yeah, I think when we were there together, right? Yeah. So 40 years. So our, our quadrennial schedule here, we, we won't see you guys till 2028. So if you're, <laughs> you want to come to a seminar, this is now's the time. All right, let's pop in to this week's podcast. This is episode 231. We're going to talk about body mass index and the American Medical Association's new quote unquote policy on BMI and then some of these uh, new anti-obesity medications. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the rise tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears, they're super stretchy, and honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the rise tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry, perfect, ready to wear, whether I'm, again, I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, they also have golf stuff if you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double, you know, in my day-to-day -day life? It's really, really good stuff. It looks clean and, uh, you know, look good, feel good, play well. That's, uh, that's my motto. So go to Viore. Uh, all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint hundred percent. You can go to their website, viore.com backslash barbell and get 20% off your first order. We'll start with BMI. So first up, what is BMI? BMI stands for body mass index. This is the weight of an individual divided by this, their height squared. And there's a bunch of different calculators. You can calculate your BMI online. It's used as a screening tool to stratify individuals into one of the following categories that have associated labels. So for example, if an individual has a BMI of less than 18 and a half, they are considered to be an, under, uh, an individual with underweight. If their BMI is 18.5 to 24.9, that individual is considered to have a normal BMI. Uh, individuals who have a BMI of 25.0 to 29.9, uh, that's an individual with overweight. And then an individual with a BMI greater than 30, that is an individual with obesity. Those are the, it's a screening tool. Uh, it is not a diagnostic 
uh, sort of tool, like you just one and done, do get a BMI and that's it. Uh, but in, in any case, it's been used for screening since uh, the 90s. Uh, the acceptable ranges for BMI do vary by ethnicity, age, and sex, meaning that if you'd looked at just a population, for example, of black individuals or individuals of Asian descent, um, you're going to get slightly different numbers. That's been known for, well, a long time, decades and decades. Individuals with smaller skeletons, uh, individuals who have pathologies that involving muscle loss, so like sarcopenia, uh, particularly with aging, the sort of optimal BMI, if you will, varies. Um, and in any, in any case, the current recommendations and guidelines developed by a number of national and international organizations, such as the United States Preventative Services Task Force, the USPSTF, the American Heart Association, the AHA, and the American College of Cardiology, the ACC, along with the Obesity Society, all recommend an annual BMI measurement for adults. So every year you should have your BMI assessed just to make sure that you're your trajectory uh, is in keeping with the uh, a healthy trajectory. In most populations, a cutoff of greater than 25 should uh, be used to prompt further evaluation, whereas a BMI cutoff of greater than 23 should be used for adults of South Asian, Southeast Asian, and East Asian descent. Those are the current recommendations. Effectively, when you get this uh, a BMI that's above either 25 or 23, the next step is usually to get a waist circumference um, mainly to identify those who are at increased risk of obesity-related chronic diseases. That's, again, if you look at all of the different recommendations, clinical practice guidelines from um, organizations that care to comment on this, that's kind of where we stand currently. So what's the rub and what's the AMA doing in here? The AMA uh, in uh, the month of June of this year had their annual meeting in Chicago to discuss a number of different issues. One of them was BMI. The AMA Council on Science and Public Health presented a report on BMI and stated that the BMI test has the following issues. BMI uh, is significantly correlated with the amount of fat mass in the general population, but loses predictability when applied on an individual level. Relative body shape and composition heterogeneity, so that just means differences, across race and ethnic groups, sexes, genders, and age span is essential to consider when applying BMI as a measure of adiposity. That's just how much body fat a person is carrying. They further state that the BMI cutoffs are based primarily on data collected from previous generations of non-Hispanic white populations and does not consider a person's gender or uh, ethnicity. And the use of BMI should not be used as a sole criterion to deny appropriate insurance reimbursement. They recommend, in addition to using BMI, to use other tools like a visceral fat measurement, which would require some sort of diagnostic imaging, like a CT, uh, for example. The body adiposity index, which interestingly uses BMI and waist circumference. Body composition, so you could test that using a DEXA scan or uh the dunk tank, which nobody's using anymore, or BIA, that's you know the handheld uh, electronic uh, current using uh, technology to measure body fat. You can also measure relative fat mass, waist circumference, uh, or certain genetic and metabolic factors. Although when I looked up genetic and metabolic factors that can be used or that have been validated to sort of identify individuals carrying too much body fat, I came up empty. I'm just like, what do you what do you mean? <laughs> like you're going to get a particular sort of, you know, allele or, 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 or gene, uh, uh, mutation like, oh yeah, this person's likely carrying too much body fat. And thank God we tested for this. <laughs> <laughs> if only there was some other way to, to make this determination. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm like, hmm. 
But their whole the whole rationale for making this policy, right, and then coming out these statements is that they claim that BMI historically has caused harm and has been used for racist exclusion and that BMI cutoffs, again, are primarily based on data collected from previous generations of non-Hispanic white populations, and it doesn't consider a person's gender ethnicity. Mainstream media, as you might have expected, has actually had a field day with this, this new policy. Uh, Fox News came out with a, a headline, the American Medical Association under fire for saying BMI is racist, pushing an agenda. There was other stuff on uh, on Fox News that I don't care to repeat. But Forbes came out with a headline, why are people fighting over BMI? Conservatives doc, uh, call doctors group woke for questioning obesity measure. Hell yeah. Uh, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, the New York Post says BMI standards are, quote, racist American Medical Association. So I think we need to unpack this. Let's start with like the history of BMI. Uh, Austin, just uh, before we actually pop into this, do you ever, I mean, because the BMI is in the patient's chart. Yes. One, is that routinely measured on the way into the hospital? And, and if so, do you ever comment on that during your sort of workup, patient care, anything like that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's automatically calculated and, and populated in the chart because people get a height and weight measured when they come in the hospital. And those things are necessary to measure for various reasons, including, you know, to get appropriate medication dosing and other uh, aspects that will be relevant to their hospital stay. And there are some situations even where based on a patient's BMI, that might actually alter my, my um, uh, medication dosing for them because um, there are certain medicines that might distribute differently or require higher dosing in, in, in certain contexts. And so it can impact my treatment decisions. I would say that it's a lot less uh, common for me to have like a whole obesity related conversation with a patient uh, in the hospital um, on the either on the basis of BMI or kind of in general, because a lot of the time, like at least in the U.S. acute care setting these days, like in a hospital setting, you have to be decently sick to get admitted to a hospital. It's not like we're just casually admitting people who are fine. Uh, those people I'll be much more likely to send home um, than to than to bring them into the hospital. And so when somebody is sick enough to come into the hospital, um, that is uh, typically not the best time to have those kind of conversations. And additionally. Um, you know, there may be situations where I might mention or, or ask them if they're okay to discuss it as it relates to their current condition, be it uncontrolled diabetes or new heart failure or something like that. Uh, but again, knowing that I am unlikely to ever see this person again, working as the inpatient doctor, and additionally, if they're coming in feeling really bad, feeling sick, maybe they have sepsis, maybe they're delirious, something like that. It's not always the best time to have those kind of conversations anyway. So I have to be selective about that, but I, I do pay attention to it insofar as it can actually impact my treatment decisions and medication dosing and things like that. Yeah, because a lot of stuff's either weight-based dosed or other times you're wondering about the body surface area that's involved yep. for particular things. But I do wonder, you know, if a person's really, really sick, like getting the weight you can do because the beds, there's some technology there where you can actually weigh people while they're, you know, in bed. Yeah, bed weights are trash, but, you know, you can do that's, that if you need that's, to. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, right? So like, so what if you're not getting like a good weight on the person yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that you're not standing them up to get an accurate height measurement? So you're like, eh, they look yeah. to be like six foot. I don't know. So Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, you know, there's a lot of other reasons for weight shifts and fluctuations. I mean, I've had patients who've lost, you know, 80 pounds during a hospital stay because all of it was water from heart failure that I made them mm -hmm. pee out over the course of a couple of weeks. And so, you know, it's a, it's, it's complicated in that setting. So I don't know that that's the best place to do those kind of things compared to stable outpatients with somebody who they're going to see and follow up with over time. Yeah. And I think that's why the recommendation from the USPSTF is like, Hey, annually when you're otherwise, you know, able-bodied moving around, 
get a BMI. Again, there's just sort of sort of charting this trajectory. But again, we're not using that in isolation. That's not been the recommendation uh, for a long time to just use BMI on its own. Um, in any case, let's go to the back to the history of BMI. So this came from a guy named uh, his first name's Lambert, but everywhere you read on the internet is Adolf. Ketelet. Uh, he's a Belgian mathematician. He developed the BMI, uh, then called the Ketelet Index in 1832. His idea was he wanted to find the average man, the proportions of the, quote, average man. Uh, it was rebranded to BMI in 1972 by Ansel Keys, and then it was adopted by the WHO, the World Health Organization, in the 1990s to replace ideal weight. So prior to the 1990s, effectively, categorizing individuals as like overweight, obese, or whatever was based on this ideal weight data, which was from insurance companies. Um, and it was basically just comparing people's weight to height. And then how often did they die from like heart disease, for example, or type 2 diabetes. And so unfortunately, the, just the direct cor- uh, correlation of height to weight doesn't scale very well uh, with not only height, different heights, but also genders, ethnicities, or whatever. And so that's why they pulled in this BMI uh, calculation to sort of do a better job. There was a bunch of other stuff they were trying like to, to modify this height to weight. It was like, uh, they really just trying to figure out how big the person's skeleton was to see like, is this person likely to be carrying too much body fat, which is ultimately what you're trying to find out with BMI screening and, and other tools like that. So they were doing stuff like wrist circumference, elbow circumference, knee circumference, biceps girth, et cetera. I mean, I'm all for the biceps girth because based on that, like height to weight, bicep size, I'm killing it. Um, But in any case, in the 1990s, the WHO settled on BMI. It is true that when coming up with this Ketelet index that was later rebranded to BMI, all all that sort of initial data was on European individuals. Uh, And so... The AMA and some other uh, in, uh, uh, sort of authors, journalists have deemed BMI to be racist because it was created from research that excluded women and people of color. Uh, and that this sort of BMI classification, categorizing people uh, uh, to either being an individual with overweight or obesity, uh, maybe these folks were denied treatment and life-saving surgeries uh, on the basis of having an elevated BMI. So effectively, they'd have to lose weight prior to receiving treatment or a particular surgery. Uh, and again, this was the categories were mostly uh, uh, sort of set up using non-Hispanic white individuals from uh, years ago and mostly men. So I think with that history, you might be starting to think, well, maybe the BMI isn't that good of a test. Like, what 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 does the research actually say on this? The research says the BMI has really, really good specificity, but very, very poor sensitivity. And that means we got to talk about both these things. So sensitivity describes the true positive rate of a test, i.e. the fraction of all people who have a condition who also test positive for that condition. The sensitivity of BMI as a diagnostic tool or screening tool for excess body fat is quite low, 36% for men and 49% for women when the cutoff point is 30. All right. This means that using BMI alone misses nearly two-thirds of men and nearly half of women who are actually carrying too much body fat but still have a BMI less than 30. So this would be the quote-unquote skinny fat individual. Um, So rather than the fear that BMI is like over-diagnosing people that are just super jacked walking around, the real problem with it is that it's missing a ton of people who are carrying too much body fat but do not have a BMI greater than 30. Um, The specificity of BMI is quite good, 
quite good, meaning that people who actually have a BMI of 30 or greater, it is unlikely to be a false positive. And in women, the specificity rate is 95%. And in men, it's 99%. Meaning that if you have a BMI greater than 30, I can be pretty certain that you are in fact carrying too much body fat. Uh, And that data is not just in white men of uh, non-Hispanic origins. Rather, this is across women, Asian descent, Sub-Saharan African descent, like there, it's just multiple different populations have been studied and that 30 cutoff is pretty good. The problem is that cutoff is so high to get that specificity cutoff. Mm-hmm. It's, you're just missing a ton with the sensitivity. And so um, what they've done, when I say they, I mean national and international organizations who actually care to comment on how obesity should be diagnosed and managed. They say, hey, we need another test, a quick, easy test that uh, you can do that's low cost, not invasive. How can we improve the sensitivity? How can we pick up more people so we're not missing them? They recommend using a waist circumference. They recommend using a waist circumference. And there are waist circumference cutoffs for people of different ethnicities and different genders. So, for example, um, if you look at a a Caucasian population, uh, if you are a man and you have a greater than 37-inch waist circumference or 94 centimeters, you have an increased risk. Um, And if it's greater than 40 inches or 102 centimeters, that risk is significantly uh, uh, elevated above uh, where it was if it was uh, at the lower cut point of 37 or 94 centimeters. But in women, the first sort of uh, tier for an increased risk for Caucasian individuals uh, is 31 inches or 80 centimeters. And then the level up from there where uh, risk is significantly elevated is 35 inches or 88 centimeters. And there are different guidelines uh, or cut points for uh, Asian populations, um, Middle Eastern Mediterranean uh, populations, people from Sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera. Just these numbers have been established. And again, pretty much all major national and international organizations who formulate clinical practice guidelines on obesity management and screening recommend using waist circumference in addition to BMI. I cannot find a single one that's like, nope, just use BMI. That's all you need. So I guess what I'm wondering, why in the world did the American Medical Association, who is not in the business of formulating clinical practice guidelines, is not involved in you know, management, screening, et cetera, of obesity. Why did they come up with this, Austin? What is the purpose here? <laughs> yeah, I do not have uh, insight into that. I, I think that there's a lot of things that might be recommended in clinical practice guidelines uh, in all sorts of different areas in, in clinical medicine. And we know that uh, adherence to those guidelines. In other words, how often practicing clinicians actually follow those sorts of guidelines very closely is in general, not awesome. And so while guidelines, you know, do say use a BMI, use a waist circumference, I think that you and I both know from our own practical experience, rotating and working in various clinics, going through training. Um, and additionally, just knowledge of this on a, on a broader scale is that most clinics are not doing this in terms of measuring waste measurements on their on their patients. Um, a lot of clinicians just use the BMI number and perhaps like an eyeball test or something like that. In other words, just like look at the person. And I think that there's a lot of tests. You know, I I feel like this ends up this is coming up more and more often these days where I just end up going off on rants on test interpretation in the Let's context of, <laughs> of medicine. But, but I think that, you know, this is something that I emphasize a ton with my you know learners and, and trainees is when they have a test result, uh, you know, 
kind of poking, trying to poke holes in their interpretation of that test. Like, how far does this test result move the needle for you diagnostically with this patient? How are you interpreting it? What's the likelihood this is a false positive? Could you be missing something? Could it be a false negative? All these other kind of things. But that takes a lot of like cognitive effort, not only to do, but you also have to have the background information about your knowledge of the test itself. And so I think if you talk to tons of, you know, practicing clinicians and you ask, how would you, you know, approach the diagnosis of obesity in this patient? They'd say, I'd look at the BMI number pretty much. And if the BMI is less than 30, then maybe they're not sweating it too much. Or if it's the less than 25, they're not sweating it too much, you know? And, and if it's higher than that, then boom, diagnosis made without thinking again at like a, a, a deeper level about this. And I see this happen, not just with BMI, but like tons of tests, tons of things in practice where, you know, um, I see, you know, some, some folks, folks who are like, oh, well, well, if this patient doesn't have a fever, they can't have an infection. I'm like, that's where you're wrong. You know, this, <laughs> this stuff is, this stuff is a lot more complicated. So I, I, I do understand kind of the, the value in continuing to emphasize or to argue against the use of BMI alone in the approach to this, this problem, because I think that despite guidelines, clinicians are not always adherent to those things, framing it through the lens of BMI, which is a, a fraction that that fraction of, you know, weight over height squared is intrinsically racist, I think is, it's just kind of like this inflammatory sort of, sort of thing. I understand the sentiment in the sense, and, and, and I would probably say that BMI might be inappropriately overgeneralized at a particular set of cutoffs. Maybe you need, um, you, you know, you need po- uh, demographic specific cutoffs. Like that's a fine thing to say. Um, and although it certainly does not precipitate, uh, you know, inflammatory Fox News headlines and things like that. So I think it's, I think it's an important topic to get out there. I don't know that the AMA is going to actually accomplish much by doing this. Um, because again, if the guidelines are already there and people are not super adherent to them anyway, then, you know, just like yelling it louder does not necessarily fix that. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I'm all for like continuing to educate healthcare professionals and other professionals in the space on like, hey, the BMI in and of itself is, you know, we need additional tools, particularly for individuals with a BMI from, I think the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists probably has the best stance on this. They're like, if your BMI is between 21 and 30, you got to get a waist circumference or some other sort of secondary measure to like not only confirm the diagnosis, but also like grade the severity, you know, like, so for example, if a person has a BMI of 23 and you're like, hmm, well, they can't possibly be carrying too much body fat, but their waist circumference is 41 inches. You're like, okay, well, this is unique, right? You would have likely this seen is an that. outlier in general, but yeah. Yeah. But you would have caught it with the waist circumference uh, yeah. and you would have missed it with the BMI. I, I think that's all fine. It just brings unnecessary ire to like BMI in and of itself. And it, you like, as you said, inflammatory with the racist comment. I don't know Ketelet's full background. Like I didn't do a deep dive on him as a person. I don't know <laughs> if he was a bad dude. And I don't know if like when he was writing, he wrote uh, uh, some book like the treat, not the treatise of man, but it had treatise in the title and it's in the 1800s. I don't know if that book again, was using the Ketele index nefariously. I do not know that. And it does seem likely to me that if using BMI alone uh, for like medical interventions or surgeries, uh, likely some populations were, you know, uh, unnecessarily and unequally sort of affected, that all makes sense. But I I don't know that that means that we got to, you know, polarize the population by saying BMI is racist. And, and ultimately, like, I don't know what this does at a public health level, right? Like, does this confuse the public more, even though it's really geared towards healthcare professionals sure. um, who may be able to take in, like, some additional context? I, I don't know. What, what do you think about this? Do you think that this new attitude 
or new sort of policy, quote unquote, like affects public attitude in a way that reduces people's willingness to engage in getting their BMI in the office? Like, you know, and subsequently, does that affect management? What do you, what do you think about that? My sense is that this ultimately is not going to do anything. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I think that yeah. this is something that's been around, been in use forever. People, ex- both on the clinician side, it's data that they look at, that they use, whether they use it inappropriately in the sense that they myopically focus on BMI alone without doing some of these other things or thinking about it more critically. I don't know that this is going to change that. And then patients, um, you know, they come into their clinical appointments with certain expectations of things that are going to be done that they're either okay with to, you know, have a height and weight measured, potentially have a waist circumference if you're in a, again, what I think is an uncommon clinic that will be doing that, or they may prefer to not have their height and weight measured and things like that. And patients are, you know, it's up to you. That's okay to do if that's what you want. Um, and so I don't know that this AMA statement, much like like so much else that the AMA does, I don't know that it's going to accomplish <laughs> anything. <laughs> it's a pretty it's it's a it's a pretty impotent organization in my opinion. But. Right? Yeah. Neither of us are members of the AMA. We've both been like <laughs> abstaining from ever becoming members due to just feelings about their function in general. And if you're listening to this and you happen to be like an AMA delegate, whatever, please don't inbox us. Like we just, <laughs> I just don't want to talk about it. But I guess in a utopian world, I can envision. If, if people are now looking at BMI more critically and like the public is like, hey, just because my BMI is above 25, for example, does not necessarily mean that I'm carrying too much body fat. I need to obtain additional sort of testing to identify this. And, you know, it's just a number. Maybe that helps lend not only some destigmatization to obesity and classifying it as a disease and also gets people, you know, more engaged and, and locked into their own sort of health trajectory. Uh, I doubt it, but maybe, <laughs> I don't know. And further, maybe it does change clinical practice where doctors are now like, okay, well, we got this BMI plus I heard this policy thing. We got to do some additional testing. I think that's probably a net benefit, but ultimately I don't know that this moves the needle. We can hope and we can hope that that needle's moved in the right direction. But, uh, also for people listening to this, my BMI personally is 28.8. It's 28.8. So I am an individual with overweight. But per BMI, but when I take my waist circumference, it's 30 and a half inches, which puts me in low risk, right? But if I was the same BMI and my waist circumference was 37 inches, well, that'd be a different story. Um, and, and again, just to reiterate, because this particular policy and, and news cycle or whatever has just dredged up the same old trope about BMI. It's like, yeah, what if you're carrying too much muscle mass? It's like, guys, look around. Literally, look around you. How many people are walking around just super jacked, super lean? <laughs> like, yeah, that person's got a BMI greater than thirty and is peeled. Um, it's just that's not the per- that's not a lot of people in the population. It's just not. We have far more people that have a BMI of twenty four or twenty five that have uh, a large waist circumference who are carrying too much body fat, putting them at increased risk for obesity related chronic diseases that we could help. Um, but otherwise maybe not getting funneled into that sort of uh, algorithm because they haven't got a waist circumference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's, there's tons of other issues that we haven't even touched on here as relating to things like body fat distribution that can vary between people and that can, that can impact the health implications of it. There's also just everything about, you know, weight bias, you know, um, stigmatization in the context of healthcare and that can, you know, feed into this. And, and I think I, I sent you a, 
I sent you a tweet um, on this topic uh, earlier by Dr. Friedhoff on, uh, on on Twitter who who said this. I'll just read this because I thought it was you know reasonably insightful. And he said uproar about BMI as a measure exists consequent to weight bias. If obesity wasn't viewed as a personal failing, no one would care about diagnostic BMI thresholds, which is why we don't see similar agonizing over blood pressure or blood sugar levels conferring diagnoses of hypertension or or diabetes. And I think there's probably something to that. I don't know that that fully explains everything that we're <laughs> observing around with the conversation around around BMI, but but I do think that you know there is uh, this has been studied a fair amount, and there's ample evidence as it relates to weight bias and stigmatization in the context of healthcare, which is a huge huge problem for sure. Um, but additionally, on the on the clinician side, there's just a lot of I think misuse of it as a measure and over interpretation and over extrapolation without paying attention to some of these other nuances of how it should be interpreted and, and applied when you're making recommendations to patients. Yeah, I agree. The final note that I'll I'll leave I'll leave the listeners uh, on is that you can be body positive, body neutral, however you want to fra- frame this, and still recognize obesity as a disease that needs to be treated in order to confer the best health trajectory for an individual. Me- meaning that you can be okay with a person not wanting to lose weight, for example, uh, while still recognizing the increased risk that they're at, which would prompt you for different management, different monitoring strategies, et cetera. You don't have to choose one side or the other where like uh, obesity is a disease or obesity doesn't matter at all. Like that, I, I don't think you can be an evidence-based practitioner and, and, and really say that obesity uh, and adiposity doesn't matter. Um, but also you don't have to be a dick about it. Yeah. And I, and I would actually, you know, tweak what you're phrasing there. Cause I wouldn't even say that you need to recognize a disease that needs to be treated. Rather, I would just say, recognize it as one that Could stands to benefit from treatment. Yeah. Sure. If that yeah. is something that somebody that, you know, fits with their values and preferences and what they want to do. Right. Cause yeah. they're in charge. Yep. There you go. I like that patient autonomy. Number one here in the barbell medicine podcast. <laughs> All right. Uh, continuing on episode 231 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're going to talk about what's been going on at this 2023 American Diabetes Association meeting, these new anti-obesity medications. And again, I don't know if maybe it's just the meeting or maybe it's just like a lull in the news cycle, but dear God, I feel like Twitter has just been getting hammered with these new papers, these new agents. And so that's why I felt compelled to like talk about them. Uh, to, to be clear, Neither of us have any conflicts of interest with respect to drug manufacturers. We don't get paid a dime for this. Not only that, but like you can't get these medications anyway. We're just super stoked that they're coming out. And some of these results allow us to unpack uh, either ideas we've mentioned before or new ideas. So first off, let's start with this new, the first one that came to light, uh, retatratide, we think. <laughs> All of these names are going to be super clunky because these are, I think, mostly phase two trials. So these are not drugs that are ready for the market yet. So they do not yet have brand names, although the brand names are also likely to be silly. But we'll what, what, what do you think? Do you remember during medical training, like one, a particular drug agent that you had been mispronouncing egregiously wrong? And then you just like got corrected when you heard the attending say it correctly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some of the some of the most challenging ones around that time were some of the new biologics that were coming out, all the MABs that were coming Dude. out, and the HIV drugs at the time were all very challenging. <laughs> yeah, any of the right, any of the antibody stuff or or, or biologics. I'm just like, can I just say the brand name? Which is which are still not great. Like if there's an X in there, I'm out. I'm just not pronouncing it. Um, in any case, all right. So this new drug, we think it's called ritatretide, uh, or something like that. It is a glucagon GIP GLP one triple agonist. 
That just means there are three different sort of molecular targets for this drug formulation. Austin, you want to take us through this phase two clinical trial that just got published? Yeah. So this was presented at the meeting and just got published in the New England Journal. Um, for anybody who wants to find the paper, the first author is Jastreboff, J-A-S-T-R-E-B-O-F-F, and colleagues published uh, June 26th of, uh, of this year. And so this was a phase two uh, study, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, so essentially gold standard for pharma- pharmaceuticals. They took a- about 338 adults, about half of them were men, with um, obesity as defined, unfortunately just by BMI over 30, or 27 with an obesity-related disease. And this is actually fairly typical for how these kind of studies recruit. And to your point, you know, from the earlier section, if their BMI is over 30 it is, and they're recruiting from the general population, it is highly likely that they are indeed carrying, t- you know, too much body fat. If they have a BMI of over 27 with an established obesity-related, you know, condition, uh, complication, then that also means it is also very likely. So in this study, the average body weight among all participants was around 107 kilos. The average BMI was actually 37, so quite a bit higher than that cutoff. So um, very, you can be very confident that they were carrying too much body fat with an average waist circumference of 150. 15 centimeters. So these are numbers that should be hopefully relatively fresh in your mind from from the last section. And so since it's a phase two study, uh, and and I think several of the ones I'll mention here today were, were, they're still kind of in the phase where they are, you know, doing some what would be considered dose finding in the sense of what is the best dose to start at? What is the most best strategy to escalate the dose over time and what is the most efficacious kind of maximum dose to get to that best balances, you know, efficacy versus, you know, adverse effects and things like that. And so they were examining a whole bunch of different dosages ranging from, you know, four, eight, 12 milligrams of this particular medicine with different strategies to get up to that dose from where they started. Um, And they compared these different arms to just placebo, uh, people who are just taking a placebo injection once a week for 48 weeks, so just under a year of study. And so over the course of that 48 weeks, um, those who were, uh, as we've seen with other uh, uh, um, of these medications, there's kind of like a, a spectrum of weight loss that occurs across all the different dosage uh, uh, options that people get to. But at the highest dose, among the people who got up to the to the 12 milligram dose, um, the average weight loss at 48 weeks was 24% which is in excess of every other medication that we have to date. And so for that arm of the study, the average absolute weight loss was 58 pounds. So 26 kilos, which is it's mind blowing. Substantial. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> um, insane. Yeah. And so that's one um, you know, of those who got to the 12 milligram dose, there was similarly impressive reductions in even the the lower dosages. And so it's not like you either have to get to this maximum 12 milligram dose or you get nothing. Everybody did, you know, lose a substantial amount of weight and body fat. But that was what was observed at the highest dosage, which again exceeds pretty much every other medication that we have seen so far, including most recently trisepatide, which I think on average was a little bit closer to 22%. Um, although, of course, there's a spread around that. Some who are hyper responders, some who are hypo responders, and kind of everything in between. What I find additionally, a couple other things that are uh, particularly interesting about this is the way that we look at, there's, there's a couple different ways to look at how effective these um, obesity uh, medications uh, are um, in terms of examining their, their efficacy. So it's been, you know, it's, it's kind of established that what we would consider in, in practice a clinically significant weight loss historically was greater than 5% weight loss. I think we've started to look a little bit more than that, maybe a little closer to seven and a half. Um, but anyway, 
that's kind of the threshold where we're like, okay, this is the real deal. This is actually accomplishing something that is likely to confer, you know, a fair amount of clinical benefit. And so you're interested in what proportion of patients on this, whatever this treatment is that you're studying, achieve at least that 5% weight loss compared to those on placebo. And so we have these data for every other obesity treatment that, you know, to date. And so including just like trying harder, (laughs) right? So studies of just straight up lifestyle interventions. And we know that there is kind of, again, I view it as this bell curve of people who are hyper responders. So people who you administer some kind of a lifestyle intervention to counseling, diet, exercise, some people, a a relatively small proportion of people are going to do great on that. Some are not really going to accomplish much. And then some may actually gain weight on that. And so the idea is if we add some additional treatment, some additional intervention on top of those existing lifestyle interventions, be it a medication, be it a pill, an injection, be it a surgery, um, be it anything, whatever intervention you want on top of lifestyle interventions, how much more of a proportion of people can you manage to get to, to, to help achieve that clinically significant weight loss. And so over time, you know, we've seen slow but steady incremental improvements in how effective our treatments are at increasing the proportion of people who actually achieve that. So whereas lifestyle alone, not really great. Some of the older, oldest medicines um, that were, you know, traditionally used for weight loss, some of which are still in use, maybe that bumps up, you know, the proportion of people who, who successfully get five to that, to that at least 5% weight loss, maybe it bumps it up by 10%, by 15%, something like that. And then, you know, some of the more uh, recent medicines did a lot better. This is the first one I've seen where among people who got to either the eight milligram dose or the 12 milligram dose, 100% of people in the study achieved at least a 5% weight loss. This is the first time I've seen this in any of these treatments. A 100% response rate is pretty much unheard of yeah, <laughs> in, in, in most medication trials for any treatment outcome where you get 100% of people to you know this, this treatment goal that you have. Um, and so you know, looking at uh, that efficacy, that is super impressive. And you might say that, uh, well, I bet because everybody you know, achieved that, it must have come at the cost of like horrific side effects or something like that. Everybody was just like puking their brains out and that's why they lost so much weight. And it's like, well, the tolerability of it was pretty comparable to the other ones that we've already seen and had experience with so far. It's not like the, because it, it would be reasonable to be like, I wonder if it's so much more potent uh, if you also see a higher intensity of adverse effects, because there are some of these therapies that kind of unexpectedly might show a higher rate of say nausea or some constipation or something like that. Not really, didn't really seem to be the case here. And then the last thing I'll mention with this medication is that as you might expect by inducing such significant loss of, of, uh, of body fat, there was substantial improvements in people's blood lipid profiles, their triglycerides and, and blood LDL cholesterol levels. The hemoglobin A1C as a measure of their average blood sugar um, also improved. And then um, I was particularly impressed to see a really, and, and this is actually, I think, a direction this field is heading, is starting to look, of course, we're looking at absolute weight loss outcomes and things like that, but we also need to be looking at what are the effects on these other obesity-related complications and health conditions, because that's what we actually care about the most is can we prevent downstream development of disease, premature death from complications. And one very common, very prevalent condition that we've actually done a podcast on is fatty liver disease. And it's very, you know, it happens together quite a bit with, uh, with, with obesity. And so this medication, um, when, when it was used, uh, it produced a very potent reduction in liver fat across basically all the dose ranges had actually 
some of the most impressive liver fat reductions that I've seen out of medications, um, things that we have not really managed to achieve with a lot of other medications so far. And so what are the... Uh, what would be the potential implications of this? Uh, as we mentioned in our fatty liver disease episode, fatty liver can cause a bunch of inflammation in the liver. Inflammation in the liver leads to scarring, leads to fibrosis, can lead to the development of cirrhosis, kind of more permanent liver damage that becomes irreversible. And then that can lead to the development of complications of cirrhosis, which are absolutely horrific. <laughs> I see them, unfortunately, all the time in the hospital setting and can lead to the development of liver cancer. Um, and all of that also can lead to people needing things like liver transplants. And all of that is an extremely uh, burdensome set of conditions to live with, uh, uh, very resource intensive on the healthcare system. It is not a great thing to, to live with. And so this is looking at, you know, reduction in liver fat, which is an outcome to look at. What we would really want to see is does this actually reverse or, you know, reduce the risk of progression to some of those more advanced things to reduce the need for liver, you know, a, a transplantation to reduce the risk of developing cirrhosis. It is uh, reasonable to think that that might be the case, but of course, you know, we should make no assumptions on these things in practice. So I'm very impressed with the amount of liver fat reduction that was achieved here. And it would be, you know, some, the, the kind of liver fat reduction that you can achieve likely through weight loss through many other means. It's just the fact that 100% response rate <laughs> Um, is remarkable in this study. 100% of patients achieved like this 30 to 50% reduction in liver fat, which is really remarkable. So it's that's mind, kind mind of like blowing. the, yeah, exactly. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? It's kind of like, you know, the, the public in general views obesity as this sort of, I don't know, unwanted physical, you know, trait, right? Yeah. And so if we, the medical community, were so hyper-focused on this, phys the physical trait, and and that in and of itself can can certainly affect people's health trajectories psychologically, social stuff, uh, whatever. Not not playing that down, but if we were just focused on the physical appearance, we'd be recommending liposuction all the time. Yeah, hey, right. <laughs> just get just get rid of the fat. The problem is that doing that, just getting rid of the fat, in and of itself, does not seem to modify the sort of health trajectory that people are on, unless it's done through physically losing weight by through energy either, restriction yeah through energy restriction and we can help that with these medications and the interesting thing and I, and I think you'd agree some of these results we're seeing on you know triglyceride reduction LDL reduction liver fat content reduction etc these things are outpacing what you would expect with just weight loss in and of itself and so it's kind of like Man, if we start if we start seeing these across other comorbidities, other uh, adiposity based chronic diseases, you know, so a further reduction in blood pressure, further reduction in A one C, it's that this that, and the other that that's greater than you would otherwise expect with weight loss. Man, this is going to be cool stuff. We're li literally changing the landscape of medicine. Yeah, yeah. And then the other the the other thing I've I've thought about this before. I was like, I wish that there would be one of these kind of interventions that gets a study published. And throughout the whole paper, the actual intervention is never named or described. It's just like blanked out. Yeah, and so you'll have people who read it. So the people in the fitness industry who are like firmly against all of this stuff, they're like, you should do my program because my program is super effective or whatever. They would read this study and say, wow, whatever this intervention was, I have no idea what it is, but man, 100% response rate, right? If that intervention turned out to be, you know, a training program, they'd be like, absolutely do it mm -hmm. all about it. If it turned out to be a particular diet, absolutely do it all about it. 
as soon as it's a medicine, they're like, Ooh. oh no, I can't. we we can't not like that. You can't yeah. get there like that. So yeah. it's very frustrating to observe that kind of that kind of mentality where it's like, do you actually want people to achieve these health outcomes or not? Because if you do, this has objectively superior efficacy to anything that you are prescribing to people. And again, just to be clear, I mentioned that all of these things are done on top of existing lifestyle interventions. They're not meant to replace it. In fact, it is not possible to achieve this level of weight loss without energy restriction. It's just that these medicines facilitate people's ability to adhere to those things. Yeah, And so the, men, the, the, the mentality around these things from a lot of the, the, the people that we see in the fitness industry is exceptionally frustrating to read. It's like this bizarre double standard or um, I don't know. It's like, do you, how much do you actually care? Or is it more so that you have to have this like puritanical, I did this myself through hard work or something. And it's like, well, I actually care about the outcomes here more than how we got there. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I think, you, I think, you know, maybe if you're a marketing person and you're working for one of these pharmaceutical manufacturers, I think it's Eli Lilly that did the retatratide or whatever, that instead of branding it as an anti-obesity medication, you should brand it as a nootropic and it, yeah. ooh, it's a behavior change medicine helps you change your behavior around food related behaviors, food seeking behaviors, food, you know, food. There's actually behavior. evidence on that. There's evidence that these totally. medicines improve food related self-efficacy, improve people's feel, sense, feelings of control around food. It actually yep. tends to subtly alter people's food preferences in some situations to less highly calorically dense kind of things. So that's actually a really interesting yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. It's like a self-efficacy booster. Yeah. Yeah. It's a food nootropic. Branded. That's awesome. <laughs> I want 10%. <laughs> All right. So that is retatratide. And if the name ends up being something different, if you're listening to this and you actually like came up with this medication for whatever reason, you somehow stumbled on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, please kindly correct me. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not that fragile, but I'm just, I feel, you just feel like you're saying it wrong. Like yeah. whatever I say it, I go, that's wrong. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next medication that just came out, uh, Cagrosema, Cagrosema, which is a dual it's two medications, right? It's an amylin analog and semaglutide mixed together. Not that like somebody's mixing this in like a pot and just stirring it or whatever, but uh, we've talked about semaglutide. So, uh, Wigovi, Ozempic, we've talked about that on, on a, the other podcast on obesity medications. The amylin analog is a new sort of player here. Amylin is a, a, a hormone that is co-secreted with insulin from the beta cells of the pancreas, uh, as soon as nutrients enter the small intestine. Uh, this is thought to act as a satiety signal, so feelings of fullness. So you cut your meals off or, or you stay fuller longer between meals. And it acts uh, at levels of the brain, um, slows down the uh, how quickly food empties from the stomach uh, a bunch of, uh, and a bunch of other things. So they basically combine amylin, this long sort of acting uh, amylin analog with semaglutide. Now, Austin, with this new drug, Cagrosema, what do they, what do they find with that? Yeah, so this one is not quite as exciting, I would say, but it is interesting and it has the potential to, you know, be available and be be used on the market. And so the idea being that by combining two different mechanisms that you can get superior results to what you would have gotten otherwise. And so in this particular paper, they looked at the change in hemoglobin A1C, so that average blood sugar control. So whereas the semaglutide 2.4 milligram dose had about a 1.79% reduction in hemoglobin A1C, which is actually quite good. And the cagrolintide uh, on its own had about a 0.9% uh, reduction in hemoglobin A1C. Together, there was about almost 2.2% reduction. So 2.2% reduction in hemoglobin A1C is actually quite a lot mm -hmm. um, and would be a, uh, by any uh, by any uh, measure a, a, a pretty significant kind of clinical effect that you would that you would expect out of that. Um, and then similarly, with respect to body weight, 
the body weight data are kind of a little bit more interesting in that the semaglutide uh, uh, on its own in this in this paper at 2.4 milligrams had about a 5% weight loss, which is actually a little bit less than I would have expected based on other trials of semaglutide. The cagrolentide about an 8% weight loss, and then together it was about 15.5% weight loss. And so again, 15.5% is well in excess of what would be considered a clinically significant weight loss and is kind of on par, I would say, with a lot of other uh, kind of medications that we've observed. Part of this is that these measures were done at week 32. Uh, There may be kind of some ongoing, we typically see like a pretty potent initial weight loss, and then things kind of start to level off longer term as you get closer to like a year mark and and, and beyond, just because things kind of re-equilibrate, people hit a new kind of steady state with respect to their energy intake and energy expenditure. Um, But this is just another one. Cagrisema is, is something that I would expect is going to be um, on the market at some point. I I don't know yet. I don't have actually personal uh, thoughts or feelings or preferences about these insofar as like one, I might be more likely to use one over another or more likely to recommend one over another for a patient. I think that stuff all remains to be kind of teased apart. And and in the real world, it's ultimately going to come down, I think, probably way more to um, to payer decisions in terms of insurance company formularies and which insurance company might cover which of these kind of agents until, you know, there's more competition and things end up gradually over the longer, longer term going generic and things like that. Now, Cagrisema's once a week injection, like the some of the other medications that we've t- discussed, but these the last or the second to last one we'll talk about is actually oral, which uh, again, as we talked about last time on the research review or two podcast episodes ago, that could potentially be a uh, game changer. Um, and just again, forgive me for butchering <laughs> this name, uh, or for Glipron. Yeah, how did I do there? I, I mean, it seems reasonable to me. O R F O R Glipron is the very Glipron. very weird, very weird name. But I think if, I think yeah. in medicine, if you say it quickly and with confidence, people <laughs> go, "Yeah, that's probably right." Uh, so yeah, this is a new uh, once daily oral non peptide. GLP-1 receptor agonist. So that's a fancy way of saying things like semaglutide, uh, which is injectable. Um, it's an oral uh, non-peptide version of that class of medications. Uh, and its mechanism is a little bit different. Austin, you want to talk about the significance of it being a non-peptide medication and how, yeah, kind of how sure. it works? Yeah. So so peptides are basically little chains of amino acids, um, kind of the building blocks for, for proteins. And as we've talked about, um, I think actually even most recently, like on the collagen kind of uh, episode, which itself is a peptide, when you eat it, you digest it, you break it down. And so historically, the oral administration, like by mouth, by pill, administration of peptide-related medications has been challenging because it hits your stomach, gets digested, and then it's broken up. And so most peptide you know, medications need to be injected. And so that's why most of these other GLP-1 receptor agonists like liraglutide, semaglutide, et cetera, terzepatide are subcutaneous injections through a tiny needle just into the skin bypasses the gut, and then then it can exert its uh, kind of systemic effects. Um, in order for peptides to be at all bioavailable orally to a significant extent, it typically needs to be you know modified in some way. Um, and so we mentioned on actually, I think it was the last podcast episode that I was on, we had talked about this, this new paper where they studied oral semaglutide at a very high dose. Um, but that actually works because it's also paired with like an absorption enhancer. Some sort of vehicle. Yeah. That like helps it get into your system. Yeah. Some fancy chemistry that is way above my head there, but, uh, it seems to facilitate 
you know, the keeping the peptide intact such that it can be absorbed, get into the bloodstream and do its do its business um, without getting broken down and digested before it ever gets there. Yeah. To be clear, the collagen protein that you or your significant other or family member is taking, they are not privy to this technology because <laughs> the R&D budget for collagen protein not only is not there. Yeah. Okay. But they don't have to do it because people are going to buy this stuff anyway. Right, right. <laughs> They're going to buy it. And it's like, guys, yeah. it just gets broken down to its constituent amino acids and is therefore just another protein, guys. Yeah. This yeah. has been modified in a, yeah, again, a very fancy, elegant uh, series of chem- chemistry steps. And I don't fully understand it, but the effects look pretty pretty freaking yeah. good. Well, well, so that, that modification was for oral semaglutide, which itself is a peptide. And so that's the only way they can get the peptide into your system. And yet, even with that, to get good absorption, the recommenda- the recommendations, the advice is that you should take it 30 minutes before your first meal uh, or drink. Other oral medications should be taken separately. And you should take it with no more than 30 milliliters of plain water. And so it's like, that's a lot of stuff to require of a patient to do every single day in the morning, particularly if they have other conditions, if they have you know, a life or things to worry about. And so the idea would be we would prefer to have some kind of an oral agent that is not a peptide because if it's not a peptide, uh, but, a, a, you know, regular old, what we call like a small molecule kind of thing or, or anything else that isn't going to get promptly digested, like recognized by your gut as a protein and break it down. Uh, so a non-peptide agent, then you don't have to worry about, you know, a, an absorption enhancer. You don't have to worry about all these rules and restrictions and limitations or, or like if you don't do it this exact way, then the absorption is going to be impaired and you're not going to get a great, a great effect. So this or for Glipron, which is... I Gosh, just a horrific basic name, name. but hopefully they can figure something out later on, um, is a non-peptide version. And so that means we don't have to worry about all those things. Easier to administer, fewer restrictions. It doesn't need that these absorption enhancers. And so that's what we're looking at here. So this is another phase two study, um, randomized, double-blinded, adults with obesity um, and, uh, and and actually excluded those with uh, with diabetes for this study. I'm sure that'll get studied separately to, to earn that approval when when the time comes. But they were randomly assigned to, achieve, to receive this medication at one of four doses, 12, 24, 36, or 45 milligrams. Again, this is phase two, you know, trying to figure out what's the best trade-off, what's the best efficacy at a given dosage versus side effects and things like that. Compared those to placebo for 36 weeks. So, you know, a decent amount of time, a little bit shorter than some of the other studies have gone, uh, but clearly long enough to show what the effect of this was. And so, you know, these patients in this study, the overall starting body weight at, on average at the start was around 109 kilos. And so at the uh, for those who were actually able to get up to the highest dosage, there was right around a 15% weight loss. And so that is, again, substantial. Um, because that is more in line actually with some of the more recent injectable ones that have been, you know, difficult to access and expensive and things like that. Not to say that this is going to be super cheap, but I think that the barriers of injectable therapies versus pills, you know, that's going to be a, a, a variable that's different here. And so to achieve 15% um, on, more or less on average in these patients, a, a very substantial proportion of people who achieved at least that minimum, like upwards of 90% who achieved that minimum, you know, 5% clinically significant weight loss with just a routine once daily pill that is like unrestricted, not a pain to, to, to take over the course of just a few months um, is, is pretty nice. And so additionally, a couple other things they looked at included things like blood pressure reduction. There was, you know, upwards of, of you know, 10, 11 points blood pressure reduction. Um, on the medication compared to about three in, uh, uh, in those taking placebo. And then similarly, we saw reductions in blood lipid levels, blood cholesterol levels, triglycerides, things like that. So again, similarly, you know, 
GI side effects, which are a kind of what I consider a class effect. Any medicine in this whole class is likely to cause some gastrointestinal side effects, particularly when it gets started. But there can be strategies to, you know, adjust the dosage to, uh, you know, uh, manage those things on the way up. And those tend to actually improve. Or you can hold at a particular dose range. And again, there was even substantial weight loss uh, between 10 and 14%, even at the lower dosages, even if you didn't get all the way up to the, to the highest dosage in the study. And so again, phase two, by the time phase three comes around, they'll have a better sense of their dosage kind of regimen, where how to best to start, how best to escalate, what are we targeting? And then um, a lot of the a lot of the uh, rates of adverse effects are going to be comparable to other medications in this class. And so this is going to offer some pretty significant advantages insofar as it's oral and much more convenient um, yeah. if it ends up all working out for them. Yeah, I was particularly interested to see that it still had a pretty decent uh, number of folks who had the GI side effects, just given the fact that we know like subcutaneous injections just in general, like can be nausea, like promoting like, uh, uh, and so you're like, oh, well, we're switching to oral. So maybe we'll like not get that chunk. And so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what they, when they finalize a dose and, and a bigger study size. But, uh, yeah, that's exciting, particularly because there's no like real restrictions on when you take it. Um, you know, it's kind of like creatine in a way you just take it yeah. whenever, as long as you remember to take it, it it'll work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Last new drug that, uh, we just got briefed on echnoglutide. Echno glutide all right austin what the heck and honestly but hey props to the naming whoever was pretty easy yeah not bad yeah (laughs) like i i think though if i were again i'm not a marketing guy but if i if i were i'd probably put like econoglutide like this is the economic choice economically yeah yeah. we'll see i don't know maybe maybe that would actually work in reverse be like i don't want the cheap one right 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 yeah (laughs) right off the bat yeah 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 i don't have a ton to say about this one this is one that i actually just learned about very like the most most recent of all of these and i don't think there's a ton that you know, is super unique. Eventually we're going to get to like a, a saturation point. I feel like with these medicines of like, we have like a thousand different ways to hit this receptor and yeah, they all cause weight loss. Um, and so then it's a matter of accessibility and cost and things like that. So this is just yet another one that underwent a phase two study. Interestingly, they actually compared this one, not to placebo, but to an already existing GLP-1 agonist with injectable liraglutide, which is one of the older ones that's been in use for, I think it was that, I think that one was approved back in like 2009 or something like that. So it's been mm-hmm. around for, for a while. Um, and they compared uh, a few different doses to the, the highest dose of liraglutide or Sexenda, three milligrams um, for about 26 weeks. And they actually showed that it kind of outperformed the liraglutide across that uh, time span for weight loss at all three of the doses that were looked at. It kind of beat that medicine out across the board. And so, um, I, you know, I think liraglutide being one of the older ones, being one that's, we talked about this before, you know, the likelihood of uh, kind of it going generic even though there's still going to be some barriers with respect to producing an injection mechanism and things like that on the generic front, that might be complicated. But the point being that we have just an absolute explosion in this field. Uh, obviously, I think that, you know, to some degree, we can, you can, you can credit capitalism in the sense that the incentives were lined up for these companies to uh, develop treatments for this, given the global burden of it. Um, and so we're just seeing kind of the, the effects of that. And so eventually, you know, these are going to permeate the market. Hopefully, I don't know that there will be many like head to head, many more head to head comparisons among them, but rather we can feel confident that as a class, these are all quite potent at this. And so then it's just going to be managing, you know, individual tolerance, individual preferences, um, you know, payer coverage, things like that. But I think it's just exciting to see the medical side of things approaching and starting to meet, match the efficacy of, uh, of surgery um, for, for long-term sustained kind of uh, weight loss and, and health improvement. 
Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting interesting to see how the market sort of changes. Like the the what I'm thinking about in my brain is kind of like the uh, erectile dysfunction drugs. So like Viagra comes out ninety eight. Cialis comes out 2003 and then Levitra comes out third also in 2003 and like heads and shoulders Viagra and Cialis did way better in the market yeah. than Levitra and you're like I wonder why and so the way I think about these anti-obesity medications um, or we call them behavior nootropics there you go <laughs> I think you're gonna see the preferred administration route be oral I think you're gonna see the preferred administration route be oral without sort of restrictions and then outside of that it's gonna be like the cheapest cost with the most efficacy and the most easily, easily available. And so I don't know. I think if I'm a drug like R and D person, I'm thinking, I'm like, I don't really know that we should make another injectable. I think we really need to go down the road of orals and further. It needs to be like real, real effective. And then, uh, and then you kind of let the chips fall where they may, but more interestingly, if the public, as they learn more and more about this, I think there was just a recent study study published that the average person in a, in a survey, uh, average public person would pay $100 a month for one of these medications. And so if you're an enterprising like pharmaceutical company, you're like, all right, I know it's going to cost us X amount in R&D. And like, here's how we're going to like do that. What sort of volume would we need to like sustain this business model? And somebody's going to figure out the calculus on that. And then, and then it's going to change the landscape of modern medicine. Like you think the market, the public is going to be like, we want these medications. And certainly given our current obesity rates, like that would be appropriate for those who who choose that route. Uh, what, what, what is going to change though? If we, if we treat, you know, if there's almost 70% of individuals in the United States, for example, with overweight or obesity, right. Uh, what, what is that going to change with respect to these obesity related chronic diseases? Are we going to see high blood pressure fall to like, Oh, only one in four instead of one in two <laughs> individuals have high blood pressure. Are we going to see, uh, you know, dyslipidemia or high cholesterol rates drop? Are we going to see diabetes rates drop? Are we going to see an increase in life expectancy? And then <laughs> like, what's going to happen? So Austin, in your opinion, 10 years from now, what does obesity management look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that these are going to be pretty central um, to 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 that. Given and as we have discussed on previous podcast episodes, our general lack of optimism that the regulatory side, that the food industry, that the food environment is very unlikely to change, then our only remaining option is to tackle it from the individual side and. Yelling at people, telling them to try harder on the individual side does not seem to be particularly effective. And so we have these additional tools that keep coming out that potently improve our success rates. In addition to telling people to try harder, <laughs> um, it can achieve much, much better health outcomes. And I would say for my work, you know, as a clinician working mainly in a hospital setting, but also in some, you know, doing some primary care, but the vast majority of what I see as far as, you know, conditions that lead people to come into the hospital are these kind of chronic cardiometabolic related health conditions. I see tons of, you know, diabetes and its complications, heart failure and its complications, neurodegenerative diseases, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, fatty liver disease, all of this kind of stuff is, is, is super, super common. And so the idea that we could have some of these agents that might reduce the burden as far as, you know, complications leading to hospitalization, leading to premature death. Um, you know, I'm especially, I mentioned to this to you previous to us recording this is, is heart failure. Uh, uh, what we call heart failure with preserved ejection fraction has actually a quite strong relationship with obesity and, and these kind of metabolic risk factors. And so the idea that we could potentially reduce the burden of, of that heart failure, which is a huge deal in, in the U S and in the world um, is, is 
very exciting to me, I think. The, what you wonder is, you know, if we achieve that success and, you know, continue to push down morbidity and mortality rates with these kind of conditions, which would be awesome if cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all these other things continue to decline, what continues to rise and take its place? Maybe some kinds of cancers, uh, you know, reemerge. Um, I'm also not feeling awesome about the, the, the specter of worsening antimicrobial resistance. So maybe infectious diseases make a comeback in the future um, as, as our uh, antimicrobial options become more, more limited in their effectiveness. I certainly see no shortage of, you know, scary multidrug resistant bugs causing severe life-threatening infections all the time. So I think that uh, predicting the future is a, is a fool's errand pretty much no matter what, but that's kind of where, where if I had to say something, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah. what I'd be thinking right now. Yeah. If people are living longer, you're going to see diff- either different types or more or higher rates of cancer, cognitive yeah. issues, things, yeah, yeah. frailty, things of that nature. Yeah. But here, okay. Allow me to be conspiratorial for a second. All right. <laughs> so if we can't change the food environment quickly, Right. We just can't, we, we, for whatever reason, can't get the policies passed, can't like do this massive overhaul of the food environment in order to set people up in a way where it's like, yeah, and we're going to tackle the obesity epidemic from this, you know, from this direction. So we're going to, you know, that's why we need these medications to help, help folks along and this, that, and the other. What if we do that and it changes people's food preferences, food behaviors, et cetera, in a way? That makes the business model for these engineered foods so, <laughs> to to use a pun, unpalatable yeah. for those businesses. Yeah, that we change the food environment from the other side. Kind of make the tail wag the dog, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, Nabisco and and Nestle are they're like man. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> big, big food, big agra is going to come after us. Uh, yeah. yeah. Start producing some extra tasty Brussels sprouts or something for people once their food preferences change. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. No, I think it's going to be super interesting. Uh, ultimately, I think we're going to reach a, cl- a critical mass at some point with like the drug development in this space. And I think you're just going to see instead of sort of like leaps and bounds improvement at some point, it's going to be just incremental. It's like, oh, this one, not only is it once a day by mouth, doesn't matter when you take it, it's just more effective. Yeah. And then and then everything's going to switch from injectable, all, just all orals. And then at some point it's going to be like once a month dosing or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It'll be cool though. I just like that there's going to be more options because I think that helps affect the market more rapidly um, than if you'd only have like one or two players in here and they can kind of like, not to say that pharmaceutical companies would ever collude with each other and like do bad things. Oh, inconceivable. Yeah. Inconceivable. (laughs) But ultimately, if we're thinking about patient care, patient care outcomes, I think having more players in the space uh, ultimately gives folks more options and, and we'll see. But Especially with the new, you know, retatrotide uh, starting to approach metabolic surgery sort of outcomes. You know, when people think about bariatric surgery, they're like, oh, yeah, you just make the stomach smaller or you reroute things and boom, lose weight. Well, it, it's because when you instrument and change the anatomy of the gut, people's food behaviors and food seeking behaviors, food uh, uh, eating behaviors, all these sort of things change because of the effect of these gut hormones on the brain. That's why they're calling it metabolic surgery and not just weight loss surgery. Um, so interesting to see what happens here in our lifetime and, and beyond. But uh, anyway, this is kind of like an emergency podcast. Where we're like, we got to do this. <laughs> we'll talk about super physiological doses of testosterone on another podcast. We'll talk about lifestyle changes on testosterone. We'll get to that. Don't worry, guys. But I uh, really wanted to talk about BMI and these uh, new uh, anti-obesity medication agents that just came out just because it's topical. And uh, 
you know, we head this off get, the pass. We get questions. Yeah. You, you got it. So that's been episode 231 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Again, special thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me and wrapping with me on this podcast. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please check out the links in the description below. We link to all the studies, all the references. We link to our sponsors, uh, Pioneer Belts uh, and Viore. Um, check that out if you want to join us at a, a seminar. We've got links uh, to that as well. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Oh, my God.